Maastricht, says the 2019 paperback edition of The Rough Guide to the Netherlands, is an alluringly cosmopolitan city in the far south of Holland, squeezed between the Belgian and German borders and known for its mouth-watering regional specialities. The guidebook waxes lyrical about Maastricht's cobbled streets and fashionable boutiques, its fantastic art fair, its colourful carnival parade. Sadly, or, I don't know, maybe happily, for the people of Maastricht, however, in Britain at least, this small medieval city will forever be associated with something else entirely, a dense 112-page legal document, plus annexes, entitled The Treaty on European Union. Thirty years ago this spring, in early 1992, senior politicians from 12 European nations, including the United Kingdom, came together on an auspicious Friday morning to sign grand two-volume copies of what we now remember as the Maastricht Treaty. It was not, in fact, the 12 national leaders, but their foreign and finance ministers who made that historic trip to the southern tip of Holland. They were greeted in fine style, with hussars and spring flowers, a champagne reception and a grand symphony orchestra playing flashes of Mozart. But it was not all plain sailing. While the Dutch turned up the Euro schmaltz, the French delegation simply turned up late, while Britain's Chancellor, Norman Lamont, didn't turn up at all sending his deputy, Francis Maud, to sign upon the dotted line in his place. I wasn't the finance minister, I was financial secretary at the Treasury, but I'd done a lot of the work on the treaty and I'd been minister for Europe and and done the negotiations on the single market, so I was very deeply into EU matters. And Norman Lamont was the Chancellor, and one morning he said, Francis, the Maastricht Treaty is going to be signed on February 22nd or whatever day it was. I'm going to be very busy that day, but this will be your chance to put your footprints on the sands of history. <laughs> and of course, it was Norman who'd negotiated it, along with Douglas Hurd and, uh, and John Major uh, at Maastricht. And, um, but he somehow, for some reason, he didn't want his signature on it, which is very strange. Strange is one word for it. Lamont, of course, would turn decisively and very vocally against Maastricht and the whole European project after being sacked as Chancellor by John Major the following year. And his non-attendance at the signing ceremony in February 1992 was not the only hint of problems to come, as Francis Maud recalls. There were a lot of people there, because obviously there were 12 members of the EEC and a finance minister and foreign minister from each and entourages and so on. So there's a lot of people milling around, plus all the commissioners and, and so on. And Delors, who was then president of the commission, was making a great speech. And suddenly there was a power cut and all the lights went off and the audio failed. So it was sort of touched by a moment of farce fairly early on. Delors used his speech, The Guardian reported at the time, to call for a federal Europe which was kind of awkward, given the UK Foreign Secretary, Douglas Hurd, had been busy that morning telling reporters that Maastricht would unquestionably not lead to further European centralisation. Watching all this intently, of course, were Hurd's parliamentary colleagues in the Conservative Party, not all of whom were entirely reassured by his words. 
for the signing of this treaty would kick off one of the fiercest battles the House of Commons has ever seen, splitting the Tories, holding the major government below the waterline, and so ultimately helping to usher in more than a decade of Labour Party rule. Despite John Major's appeal to the Maastricht rebels, 26 Tories voted with Labour. The drama of the moment could not have been better demonstrated than by the result, a remarkable dead heat. His own backbench rebels had joined forces with the opposition parties. He was forced to call a confidence vote to save his government. Prime Minister. So how does Maastricht look now, 30 years on? Did the treaty stand the test of time? How do the key players in those epic all-night debates look back on it all? And can you really, as some have suggested draw a straight line from Maastricht 1992 to the Brexit vote of 2016. From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're looking back at the Maastricht Treaty on its 30th anniversary and asking whether it was the European project's greatest achievement or perhaps its greatest mistake. There's absolutely no way around this, I'm afraid. This week, we're going to have to start with the techie bit. If, like me, you're kind of into the news, but are also not one of those ever-so-slightly obsessive Eurosceptics or Europhiles who came pouring out of the woodwork in 2016, then you probably think you know a fair bit about the Maastricht Treaty, but are maybe a little hazy around the detail. So, I started by calling up Catherine Barnard, Professor of EU Law at Cambridge University, to ask where Maastricht actually stands in the pantheon of European treaties. It was a biggie. It was arguably the second or third most important after the foundation treaties. So just to put it in context, the first major treaty change came with the Single European Act in 1986, which paved the way for the single market. And then you've got the Maastricht Treaty in 92. And then the other big treaty was the Lisbon Treaty, uh, which came into force in 2009. And that essentially was a constitutional treaty in all but name. Before we get into the detail of what's in the Maastricht Treaty, can you tell us a little bit about how it came about? Like, why is there a Maastricht Treaty at all? Yeah, so there was long thought that there needed to be something like a single currency. And there'd been a lot of planning for a single currency. And this led to some quite important work led by Jack Delors, who was then the head of the European Commission. And that was going full steam ahead. The broad context was that the EU was going through really quite serious doldrums from probably the mid to late 70s to the mid 80s. And certainly the whole project had lost its sort of buzz, its raison d'etre. And so the Single European Act was intended to put the market back into the common market and actually was there to remove important barriers to trade. But in reality, the fact that I could sell my goods in another country meant it was quite difficult for me to price my goods because I had no idea how much the French franc or the Spanish peseta was actually going to be worth. And so for those who were committed to the European project, they saw the single currency as the next logical step. Why does the United States work? They've got the dollar and therefore the EU should mirror that and have the same. And so that would help the market work better. And for those who were truly committed to the European project, you said, well, actually, the next stage of integration is not just economic 
union, but also political union, and that would be having central institutions that would control the operation of the single currency. And so you see footprints of this in the Maastricht Treaty. For the new British Prime Minister, John Major, who'd succeeded Margaret Thatcher in November 1990, this looming conversation about a single Europe-wide currency was an unwelcome distraction. He didn't much like the idea, and he knew his party was badly divided on the issue. And he had plenty on his plate already, with the war to win in the Gulf, Thatcher's wildly unpopular poll tax to dismantle back home, and a general election to fight within the next 18 months. But the rest of Europe had long been committed to the project, and draft treaty texts were already being written. The detail of the proposals proved far-reaching. They hammer out the pathway for a single currency. Note, monetary union, but not accompanied by economic union. Big problem going down the line, because as we know, for the single currency, you have a single interest rate, which was set, favoured Germany, and it meant that there was huge public expenditure and private expenditure in countries like Greece, Spain, Italy, which eventually led to the financial crisis. The pathway for a single European currency was of course the most important aspect of what was agreed at Maastricht. The rules of entry were set and sure enough, ten years later, the euro came into being. But that was far from the end of it. There were a whole bunch of other things that were sort of added on as extras, but those extras turned out to be extremely important too. So the introduction of the so-called three-pillar structure. You had the European Communities Pillar, which had already been there, and then you had two brand new pillars on common foreign and security policy and justice and home affairs. They were really sensitive issues, which were not going to be left to the EU to sort out, but essentially the EU would provide the framework for the heads of state to sort things out. More far-reaching still than an agreement to work together on justice, home and foreign affairs issues, however, was a truly fundamental shift. The creation for the first time of an actual, kind of semi-sovereign European Union, complete with 350 million EU citizens. The EU decided to introduce the notion of citizenship of the Union. And so everyone who held the nationality of a member state became a citizen of the Union overnight. And this was the logical corollary of political union, because if you're going to have politics, you need to have a people. And the people were EU nationals. Do you think the people negotiating these things really had grasped the implications for things like national sovereignty of what they were doing behind closed doors? I think the answer to that is probably no, or maybe some of them did know, but they were worried about spelling it out in black and white. Perhaps the most famous paper that was written on the Maastricht Treaty was a paper by Deirdre Curtin. And one of the things she says is that she thinks the member states were acting capriciously in changing the constitutional ground rules. And significantly, she goes on to say, it cannot be surprising that the ordinary citizen feels more and more alienated from the entire community process. And that is back in 1993. So already there were people expressing concerns. Now, the EU's response to that is, well, look, we're giving things to the people. Look, you've all become a citizen overnight. The Dutch, who held the rotating EU presidency, had said final negotiations on the draft treaty would be held at a summit of leaders in Maastricht in December 1991. 
John Major flew in with Norman Lamont at his side, and after one of those famous all-night summits that we've all come to know and love over recent years, came home with the concessions he'd wanted from the other 11 member states. Major had secured an opt-out from the single currency, while leaving wiggle room for Britain to enter at a later date, if it saw fit. And, more controversially, he'd removed from the treaty altogether the so-called social chapter, by which nations would agree minimum standards and conditions for workers across Europe. Well, it was clear that the 11 were going to go ahead with a single currency, or at least 10 of them. The Danes were in some doubt. This is John Kerr, the crossbench peer who in 1992 was the UK government's permanent representative in Brussels, and so a central player in the Maastricht negotiations. It was clear that a British veto wouldn't have worked. The 10 or 11 would have gone ahead with a new treaty and we would have been outside. John Major accepted the advice of people like me that it was uh, going to happen and that the best thing to do was to make sure that we had a ticket to join it if we wanted to, that we couldn't be screwed on the conditions of joining the way we'd been screwed way back in 1972 on the fisheries policy and that we would have a full say in how it was constructed, what would be the rules of the single currency in case we want to join and in order to make it City of London friendly. Now, my experience of EU summits is that these things tend to all be hammered out weeks in advance by officials rather than by the leaders themselves. Was that the case? Did, did, did you have all the pieces in place for these opt-outs or, or did it all really happen on the night? Uh, literally, yes and no. On the, the monetary union, yes, we had. There were minor rows, but... Basically, the deal was done with Delors in advance. On the social opt-out, absolutely no. I went to Maastricht not knowing what the outcome was going to be. The others thought that they could lean on John Major and get us to agree something. And he, over three days, dug in very hard. What's it like to be in a big negotiation like that in real time? Is it exciting? Is it terrifying? Uh, Yes, it's absolutely terrifying because you've no idea what they're doing in there and all your patient work may be being torn up. I mean, the the rules of the game for the European Council are that there are no officials in the room except an official from the presidency country. So people like me who are anxious to interfere, they pop in and out with messages, which you're allowed to do. And I did pop in and out with messages uh, quite a lot. And in the end, John Major got fed up with my going away and said, um, you know, stay. So actually, I did hide under the table and the presidency were well aware of that. But I think they must have thought that uh, conceivably I might be constructive. So there was no attempt to throw me out. Major's stance at the summit had been bullish. He would not sign the treaty without these concessions, he said. Faced with the prospect of the process falling apart, EU leaders reluctantly agreed, rewriting the social chapter as an appendix signed by the other 11 member states, but not by the United Kingdom. Given the direction of travel that Europe was headed and the loneliness of Major's position around the table, these seemed like notable concessions and, though this is largely forgotten now, the treaty was initially seen as a win for Britain. One of Major's press team briefed hacks in Maastricht that it was, quote, game, set and match to the UK. Major insists now he never actually said those words, 
but notes dryly in his autobiography that both the Times and the Telegraph hailed his negotiating success. Covering this story for the Telegraph at that time, it's worth noting, was the paper's 27-year-old Brussels correspondent, one Boris Johnson. At the time, it was seen by my colleagues in Brussels as an extraordinary triumph. They were all very relieved that we hadn't had a showdown with the British trying to veto a European Union and therefore a new treaty having to be written with the British excluded from it. They thought that was a, uh, the, the outcome on, on the monetary union was fine. And the fact that there was an overall deal secured, which was in doubt because of the British position on the social dimension, it was seen as a bit of a triumph. Did you have any inkling of the parliamentary explosion that was going to go off when, uh, when this thing returned to Britain after the election? No, and of course it was a slow burner. The polls show that in January, February, March, after the December Maastricht, it was extremely popular. I mean, the British press were pretty unanimous that it was a bit of a triumph for a major, and the public opinion polls said the country quite liked it. Former Treasury Minister Francis Maud agrees. In the aftermath of the negotiation and signing and agreeing the treaty, it wasn't very controversial. I mean, there was no big problem in the House of Commons. Only a few kind of diehards were opposed. And it was thought actually at the time to have been a bit of a negotiating triumph. But the warm, fuzzy glow of victory would not last long. Within certain corners of the Conservative Party, claims that British interests had been defended at Maastricht were falling on deaf ears. I did have a sense that this was looking to me more and more like a major step change. This is Sir Ian Duncan-Smith, a future Tory leader and Cabinet Minister, of course. But in late 1991, still a young parliamentary candidate hoping to become an MP for the first time at the upcoming general election. And the more I looked at bits of it when I was a candidate, I just got concerned about it. And then I got into a set of correspondence with one or two others who were in the same place, worried about what was going on. The reason why Maastricht became important, because it was a moment, really, when suddenly they were kind of waking up to the fact that, actually, well, wait a minute, we had the wool pulled over our eyes. On the Tory backbenches, a hardcore of Eurosceptic MPs had been watching events with similar unease. In his book, Diary of a Maastricht Rebel, the Tory backbencher Christopher Gill reveals a small group describing themselves as Euro-realists had been meeting regularly through 1991. Wild horses won't get me to vote for more federalism, he told the government's chief whip, Richard Ryder. About two dozen other Tory MPs felt the same. Chief among them, one Bill Cash, a 51-year-old constitutional lawyer with a penchant for dusty but deadly parliamentary amendments and someone who'd been rebelling against the government on Europe ever since Thatcher's first push towards a more integrated single market way back in 1986. I put down an amendment on the Single European Act. What I was really worried about was the extent to which we were removing the veto. What we'd said is we would never give up the veto because to do so would be fatal to our national interests and would endanger the very fabric of the European community itself. That veto was being whittled away in a very serious manner, and so I put down the sovereignty amendment. 
Building on his past experience, Cash started to draw up what would prove to be a never-ending series of amendments to the Maastricht legislation, as both sides geared up for a parliamentary struggle of epic proportions. At first, as we heard from Francis Maud, the rebels appeared a small and pretty powerless group of die-hards. But three pivotal events in the months which followed the signing of the treaty would transform their fortunes. Firstly, Major unexpectedly won the April 1992 general election, but with his Commons majority slashed to just 21. With the treaty now to be put before the Commons in the form of a government bill, the would-be rebels, including the newly elected Ian Duncan Smith, saw their chance to make an impact. And I remember at the time when I made my first speech in the House of Commons, my maiden speech, I said to the government, I'm not going to support you. And I remember there was a lot of anger about it. I said, I understand that the government has got rid of the word federal from the document, but I said, a bite from a Rottweiler still hurts just as much, even if you insist on calling it a Pekingese. And um, uh, they were furious about that as well. Was it difficult on a personal level to, to start your career as an MP, as a serial rebel? Were you sort of conflicted about loyalty to the party and the leader and so on? Yeah, I was really, because you don't really think about coming in to defy the government. And I had everybody on my case from start to finish, really. Uh, Chief Whip hauled me in, sat me down and talked to me about a great future that I was going to have um, and uh, how it could all be under jeopardy. Anyway, when I abstained on the second reading, about a few days later, there was a piece in the Express. I can't remember the name of the, the columnist that wrote it, but we do know that he took a lot of briefings from the central office. And it, it was a summary of the week. And at the end, it came to, oh, and Ian Duncan Smith, a new member, who decided not to back the government over Maastricht, he said something like, I'm told now that he should look in the mirror because he will there see his career all behind him. And I remember reading that thinking, oh, well, that's it then, isn't it, really? Uh, I'll be out pretty soon. It'll be all over. (laughs) But I didn't change my mind. How did you rate your chances of success as a, as a group of Eurosceptics at that stage? Because it, it kind of seemed terribly likely that you would actually stop the treaty. We knew we were on a hiding to nothing and that, you know, we could delay, we could pontificate, we could try and make every argument, we could be right. But they weren't going to listen. We knew they were going to drive this through one way or the other. And then something miraculous happened. The Danes had a referendum on Maastricht. And they rejected it. This week, a form of early summer calm was abruptly shattered by the shockwaves of the Danish referendum. When we actually get the breakdown of what the Danes were saying when they said no, some wanted stronger Europe, some wanted less. Would you accept that the Danes have killed it? Well, as Douglas Hurd said, a lot of the European community matters have progressed by means of hiccups along the way. I remember the euphoria when we heard that the Danes had actually had the temerity to vote against Maastricht. And immediately this threw everything into chaos. The government didn't then return to the Maastricht Treaty until much later on. Meanwhile, the Danes were bullied by the EU that they had to hold the referendum again uh, and they had to get a different result. And finally, they succumbed to the pressure and voted for it. But that delay gave us a real moment because from then onwards, we knew there was doubt in the heads of many of my colleagues who didn't take part in the debates. The former Treasury Minister, Francis Maud, agrees the Danish no vote in June 1992 
was the second pivotal moment. At that stage, I think the sort of hardcore Eurosceptics in the Conservative Party thought, OK, so you know, no one told us we had an option to turn it down. And now the Danes have turned it down. Why do we have to accept this wretched thing? And so that's, I think, what spurred it all on. The Danes would come back to the polls and vote yes the following year, once their government had secured their own opt-outs from the treaty. But for the major government, the damage was done. As always happened, there was a kind of fudgy deal done with Denmark, which didn't really change anything very much, but gave them an opportunity to go back and ask the same question again. And then, of course, there was the French vote on the Maastricht Treaty, which was incredibly narrow and which many people think actually might not have been a completely fair referendum result, but it was incredibly close. And so there was this sense, you know, countries that look like they're more pro-European than Britain are obviously having a bit of concern about this. So we who are much more Eurosceptic, why should we put up with it? The third blow for Major's government, following the drastic reduction in his majority and then the Danish no vote, came in September 1992, when the value of the pound tumbled and Britain was sent crashing out of the European exchange rate mechanism. At a stroke, the Tories' reputation for economic competence was shredded and the mood in the country turned against Major for good. A unique day in London's financial markets ended with the Chancellor announcing that the pound was being suspended from the ERM, the most dramatic U-turn in government economic strategy for 25 years. Labour demand the recall of Parliament and say today will become known as Black Wednesday. Nevertheless, in the short term, Major's government was only going to be in real trouble in Parliament if the growing band of Tory rebels lined up on the same side as the opposition parties. This presented a tricky position for Labour, which by now had essentially become a pro-European party, and so did want to see the Maastricht Treaty ratified. There was a lot in the Maastricht Treaty that, you know, was quite trailblazing. The party's young Shadow Europe spokesman, George Robertson, now a Labour peer and former chief of NATO, was tasked with figuring out how to cause the government as much difficulty as possible without actually killing the treaty altogether. He got the opt-out on the social chapter and that provided us with a cause to fight for. The rest of the treaty we were all in favour of. We were solidly behind it, but the opt-out was something that uh, crystallised our opposition. And in a way, politically, that was a, a gift for you guys in the sense that there was something for you to oppose. Indeed, and, and the government was manifestly divided and uh, in a degree of chaos. So, you know, I coined the, the phrase, we're out to wreck the government, not the treaty. A lot of my pro-European friends were very nervous, especially the ones in the European Parliament. What were we doing? You know, why were we holding it up? You know, why were we trying to, you know, sort of defeat the government all the time, thinking that could actually lead to the foundering of the treaty as a whole. So I had to keep encouraging people to say, you know, we're out to get the government not to kill the treaty. So that was a delicate balance too. Robertson says the support of his party leader, John Smith, for this high-wire act was shored up by a bitter row with the government over the nomination for Britain's next EU commissioner. Bruce Millen was standing down as member of the European Commission. And after the 92 election, John Smith wanted to nominate Neil Kinnock for that vacant position. 
And it was basically a promise that they would appoint Neil Kinnock to do that. And then one late one night, Tristan Carroll-Jones phoned me to say, sorry, the deal's off. The cabinet won't agree. And I said, you, you must be joking. This was, a, this was a deal that was done. And it's our nomination. He said, well, you know, it turned out that uh, I think it was Leon Britton who didn't want any competition from Kinnock being there. So uh, the deal was all. And it, John Smith was incensed. Major and his Europe minister, Tristan Garrell-Jones, had been relying on Labour support for a paving debate which prepared the ground for the bill's passage through the Commons. But following the row over Kinnock's non-appointment, they would get no help at all. The tone was set for the battles to come. When it came to the paving debate, the John Major assumption was that the, the opposition won't stop that. They'll want to get onto the committee stage. John Smith said, if the deal's off, this deal's off. So it was only the last-minute intervention of the Liberal Party that saved the government that night. Otherwise, he would have been defeated at that point. Just like Bill Cash, Labour's Robertson had spent weeks poring over the detail of the treaty and trying to figure out where amendments should land. The Maastricht Treaty was very complicated. It was not an easy thing to digest. So I'd spent the whole of the summer going over it, reading it all, doing all the inserts, and then writing the amendments for the stage in the, in the, in the House of Commons. That was essential because I needed to put the amendments down first in order to be leading each of the debates as it took place. It was all my waking hours, first of all, reading the treaty, you know, then getting the amendments. That wasn't an easy process. And, uh, you know, I'm sort of goggle-eyed by the end. By the autumn, Labour's position was clear. Under the auspices of demanding the social chapter rules be adopted by the UK government, as they had been by the rest of Europe, Labour could team up with Tory rebels and threaten the government with significant defeat. Both sides had drafted scores of amendments. It meant the whole process would be dragged out enormously, exposing the Tory divisions night after night, week after week. The nightmare scenario most feared by the government, a double negative vote, leaving Maastricht in limbo. The question really was one of doing it step by step, not frightening the horses too much, but making it enough of a rumble to make them realise that we really meant business. Tory rebel Sir Bill Cash. The chief whip, actually, was very, very reasonable, as a matter of fact, Richard Ryder. He had an awareness of the nature of the problems. Some of the other whips, like David Lightbound, for example, who was also a Staffordshire MP, was incredibly difficult to deal with. But um, he tried it out once on me and then he got such a rasping that he actually backed off and he never tried it again. What would he try? What sort of thing? Oh, he, he, he threatened... Uh, I mean, we, you hear about people being threatened and harassed and the rest of it. I mean, you just take it in your stride. I mean, there's no point in expecting when you're trying to take on the government like that that uh, they won't react accordingly. So David Lightbound was an extremely large... Uh, character, but I knew him pretty well, and the bottom line was that uh, it didn't really make the slightest bit of difference to me or to anything that I did. David Lightbound was a notorious figure in the Maastricht Whips office, nicknamed the Terminator by Tory MPs, and famous for throwing his considerable weight around. Working alongside him in the Whips office at that time were two future Tory cabinet ministers, David Davis 
who of course would ironically become a leading Brexiteer, and his close friend, Andrew Mitchell. As a whip in those days, we were a tremendous band of brothers and we kept John Major's government afloat. Night after night, winning these votes by two or three, at two or three in the morning. It was a, a, an amazing time. And I saw far more of my fellow whips than I did of my wife and family. Each whip was allocated a handful of rebels to deal with, and each, as Andrew Mitchell recalls, approached the situation in their own special way. I had some of the most difficult people as part of my flock. I remember one of them, who was a very, very great man called Richard Boddy, telling me that uh, he was fed up with me being his whip and he was going to sack me. And I had to point out to him that, you know, he couldn't do that. And, and also, actually, a, an amazing man in the House of Commons whom I remember so uh, very well, Sir Peter Tapsell. I was 30, 34 or 35. I went to introduce myself as his whip and he looked me up and down and he said, one really feels one's age when the son of one's first whip becomes one's new whip. And it was, it was impossible. And he was an extremely interesting Maastricht rebel because he came at it from the left and not from the right. And he approved of a lot of the sort of uh, social chapter legislation and so forth. So he was very different. And, and um, I remember on one occasion he did something which he shouldn't have done. I think he voted against us without telling us, which is a cardinal sin in the whip's book. And the chief whip said, go and find him and give him a tremendous bollocking. And I said to the chief, I can't do that. I can, you know, he's a friend of my father's. I can't possibly go and give him a bollocking. He'll just start laughing. So what I did is I walked down the stairs after the last vote. I walked down through the lobby, down the stairs and out of the member's entrance. And I walked beside him in the hope that he would feel the reproach of a younger colleague whom he'd let down. And, and he did feel that, and we walked down the stairs. And as we got, came out of the members' entrance, he looked at me and he said, your problem is there is nothing I want from your office. He said, I'm a knight, so I've been honoured. I certainly don't want to join this benighted government. And uh, I'm rich. In fact, I'm very, very rich. He said, I advise central bankers all around the world. The only thing I want back is my son, and there's nothing you can do about that. And he walked off into the night, leaving me about two inches tall because his son, very sadly, had, had died uh, some years before. So that was, that was a, a whipping experience I didn't forget, but it shows you the human emotion of it all. The parliamentary battles raged night after night for months, from late 1992 when the bill was introduced until the summer of 1993 when it finally passed. Labour's George Robertson. They brought me in with the government lawyers to look at some of the early stages of it, you know, and I actually gave them some wise advice about some of the early stages, and then they dropped it. Just, that was it. End of cooperation, end of that. And then it developed into pretty well a guerrilla war as it went on. So, you know, it went on for week after week after week. They always put it on on a Thursday because they wanted to go through the night. You know, and if they, if they got it through the Thursday night... They could go through the weekend and they would actually make progress because they were making no progress at the time. So the weird thing about the House of Commons is that, you know, the, the House can only sit after 10 o'clock if the House of Commons agrees. So technically there's a vote at 10 o'clock as to whether to do it. So right up until a minute to 10, the government you know, was trying to calculate the votes. And I had to keep our people there on a three-line whip and then it would come to 10 o'clock and the government wouldn't force the vote. So we finished at 10 o'clock and I said, 
you kept us here till 10 o'clock on a Thursday night and there's no vote. But I kept saying it's a victory each time. How closely were you actually working with those hardcore Tory rebels through those days? Well, they were essential. You know, 26 of them were there. So if I could find an amendment you know, that, 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 that would defeat the government and I could get the Liberals to come along with us, I phoned up you know, one of these guys and 26 Tory MPs, a year after their election, were in the lobby with me. And there was one night where they only had 25 and they came and apologised and said that one of them had been stuck in the tube and couldn't be there. So, you know, it was, it was quite extraordinary. So, yeah, we did, we did uh, choreograph it with them. And I would tell them, you know, what we were doing. They were determined to kill the treaty. We were determined to save it. But at the same time, they wanted to cause maximum embarrassment to the government that they were elected to support. This is not, I should say here, Bill Cash's version of events. I didn't work with the Labour opposition. It was my amendments, and we were voting on those, and they were actually merely using that opportunity to make difficulties for the government. Ian Duncan-Smith says that for the rebels, the ends ultimately justified the means. I think we realised that we were fighting a guerrilla war. I always There was a very good book written about guerrilla warfare called The War of the Flea, And that's pretty much where we were. It's causing such annoyance and upset to a government on a disproportionate scale from the scale of our numbers. And that's what we were about, trying to get people to stop and think about what they were doing. In July 1993, after months of parliamentary attrition, Robertson and the rebels between them finally concocted what journalists quickly nicknamed the Semtex Amendment a vote on the social chapter which Labour hoped would blow up the entire government. The first vote was dramatically tied, with Speaker Betty Boothroyd delivering her casting vote in the government's favour, as is parliamentary tradition. But on the second vote, the Tory rebels turned out in force and Major was defeated, plunging his government into full-blown crisis. I... We hadn't voted against the government all the way through because I was a new member and I'd been more judicious about it all, uh, etc. But I do remember on that vote, the government knew they were right on a knife edge and could lose it. And I remember going to the lobby when the bell came. As I went there, I suddenly got caught in the bit between the two lobbies, the no vote entrance and the yes vote exit. And I was surrounded by very senior cabinet ministers who were there. And they sort of literally surrounded me and they were saying, you don't have to do this, you've got a great future, da-da-da-da-da, you've made your point, you've won the arguments, we all accept this. These were all cabinet ministers telling me that we had won the argument. But, you know, we just need to have this vote, we can't do this. Part of me wanted to go along with the government and say, okay. The other bit then, finally, I said, no, I can't do that because I'll let down the people that I've worked with on this for some time. And I then said, I'm terribly sorry, I'm going to have to go. And as I did, they kind of parted and I walked in. The worst moment was at the far end, there were a whole load of Labour MPs standing. And as they saw me walk into the lobby, they cheered. And my heart went into my boots. (laughs) That's the worst thing that could have happened. And there was real anger. I have to tell you, nothing like now. Then there was real anger. They were like a phalanx on the other side when I came out. Conservatives, very angry, shouting, and you know, all sorts of abuse going on. Today, nobody faces anything like that, but it was a very much more physical affair in those days. So, yeah, so, yeah, it wasn't easy. 
I'll never ever forget it. The Thursday night was the defeat of the government. Labour's George Robertson. Most people didn't think it was going to happen, that the rebels would fold at the last minute. And I had five pieces of paper with what John Major might do if he was defeated. One of them was, you know, the, the government has the right to ratify treaties without going to Parliament, so we're just going to do it. That had been rumoured for, for a while. And, and the final nuclear option was motion of confidence. John Smith was not terribly persuaded. You know, he'll find some dodge to get round it. Uh, so when he said, right, we meet again in the morning on a motion of confidence on Her Majesty's government tied to the ratification of the treaty, everyone was stunned. He said, me. The grave-faced Prime Minister then rose to his feet to and announce so a vote of confidence in the government. The government will invite the House to come to a resolution tomorrow putting down a motion of confidence. So the drama is unfolding and whatever, but that's half past ten at night. And the debate's at 9.30 in the morning. So I realise I've got to put the amendment in. So I go off in, in order to speak to the table office about the amendment. In the meanwhile, they're all looking for me, you know, because the leader is watching, what the hell do we do now? But I'm in the table office and my pager is buzzing and buzzing and buzzing. Please go urgently. And I remember afterwards when it actually worked, John Prescott coming to me and saying, he said, you know, I thought you were just bullshitting us. He said, he said, I just didn't believe it at all. He said, so I've got to admit, I was wrong. Well done. And that was, that was a little accolade there. John Major has put his job and perhaps his government on the line. Well, I think it's disappointing. It's a confidence motion. I just think that there are certain people who have gone loopy in the Tory party. And it's about time they decided who they supported. The following day, Major pushed ahead with his nuclear option, tying the treaty vote to a confidence vote in his government. Defeat, he told his MPs, would mean a general election and one the Tories could ill afford to lose. The gamble was enormous, but it worked. The rebels fell into line and the treaty was finally voted through. Here's Bill Cash. When it came to the ultimate question about the confidence vote itself, I remember saying that in the House that I would never let this government fail and lead to a general election as a result of a confidence vote because John Smith was an even greater Federalist than John Major himself and therefore I would not support the Labour Party on that confidence motion and that was that because there was more to come. The treaty became law, but the fallout was immense. Major in his diary noted the unrepairable damage to his image as a weakened leader of a deeply divided party and all that that would mean for the 1997 election. But the implications for the nation would be greater still. An entire wing of the Tory party had been radicalised by Maastricht and would not now rest until the union it created was undone. The rebel Christopher Gill noted in his diary that he was now, quote-unquote, a referendum man. The fact of the matter is that a referendum is now seen as the only way forward by those of us who are totally opposed to European Union, he wrote. It's difficult to see any other way out of the present impasse. Could things have been handled differently? Here's George Robertson. Well, if they'd stuck to the deal about the commission place 
that that would have changed the atmosphere. I don't think John Smith would have been as belligerent during that, you know. If they'd actually cooperated in the way they started off with, with Tristan Garrel Jones, then that would have made a difference to the to the sort of chemistry of it. If John Major had been more resolute about what his position was, because he was sceptic and then he was enthusiastic and the rebels, you know, were exploiting that. And basically, if they'd recognised that the social chapter was not, you know, something that was going to be a bomb underneath the British system, then life, life would have been very different. And what about the treaty itself? Did the EU leaders who met in Maastricht that winter unwittingly lay the seeds of Brexit? For UK diplomat and Maastricht negotiator John Kerr, it was the process of opting out which began in 1992, which prepared the ground for what was to come. We abdicated the position that we then had as the drivers of the single market, the drivers for enlargement of the European Union. We withdrew. I feel that, that there was a process which began sometime in the 90s, and you may be able to trace it back to the opt-outs at Maastricht in which we began to distinguish ourselves again from the European Union and decide that the differences were more important than the commonalities. I personally find that very sad. And I'm not sure that Maastricht was a triumph because it did play some sort of role in starting that process. For Francis Maud, however, those opt-outs offered a glimpse of a different future for Europe. Looking back with hindsight, I've reflected particularly in the aftermath of the Brexit vote that Maastricht was, in a way, it was a big missed opportunity. It could have been an important inflection point in the way the union developed. We had an opt-out from two things. Denmark had an opt-out from the single currency. At the same time, you had the Schengen Agreement coming into existence, which some members of the community were not members of, but and some who weren't members of the community were members of, like Norway, for example. And, and so there was a much more flexible way of developing the union, which could have flowed from the Maastricht Treaty, which wasn't pursued, which was, for me, a shame. And, you know, when the next round of applicants came along, the, the Nordics, um, Finland, Sweden, and then the Baltics and so on, It was one size fits all from that moment on. There was only one way to belong to the club. And that's led to it having this quite rigid format and approach, which I think is one of the reasons why the UK decided to vote against it in the Brexit vote. There's only one way of belonging from that moment onwards, which was a pity. So what could have been part of the legacy of of Maastricht was, was squandered. For Ian Duncan Smith, of course. It was the treaty itself and the direction of travel it signalled which were the problem. The direction became public at Maastricht. The European Union, single currencies, you know, qualified majority voting, flags, a concept of a, of a supranational state. All of these things became written down at Maastricht. Once you pass Maastricht, the direction for the European Union is set. All that we need to know is what's the pace The question, therefore, is at which stage will this become obvious and thus intolerable to the British public? I never doubted that we were right. I know it sounds arrogant. I didn't doubt that we were right. 
I just didn't think that in my lifetime or my political lifetime we would see the kind of scale of change that was necessary. But I did believe all along that Maastricht, I thought, sounded the death knell for our relationship as it stood then with the European Union because they would pursue the Maastricht agenda which set the train for greater and further centralisation. And I just instinctively kind of sensed that more was coming and that at some stage the UK would just no longer be able to stay in the European Union. And here's Professor Catherine Barnard of Cambridge University. I think with the benefit of hindsight, it was too much too fast. Of course, there's an intellectual case to be made for each one of the steps that were taken. There was an intellectual case to be made for having a single currency. It was the inevitable consequence of having a functioning single market. As I said before, why does the US single market work? Well, it's underpinned by the dollar. And so you could see the attraction. You could see the attraction of introducing the notion of citizenship of the union. Indeed, an idea which had been discussed not just in the 1990s, but way back in the 1970s as a way of constructing the European project. You could see the benefit of having a social policy provisions in the treaty, again, to be attractive to citizens of the European Union. All of these things made logical intellectual sense, but there was a total failure to explain any of it to the people. And there was very little attempt to try and get any public consent for what was happening in their name. As you mentioned, there were referendums afterwards in several countries. And although they were pretty tight and one went the wrong way, they sort of they got the consent they needed in the end in that way, didn't they? They did. Um, but of course, you might ask to what extent was it properly informed consent? Do people really know what was being agreed to? And of course, I think certainly for the UK, the seeds of what became the Brexit movement can be traced back to Maastricht. So we know that immigration was the probably main reason for why people voted to leave the European Union. And that was partly because they were concerned about all of the implications that came with EU citizenship, in particular free movement. And so, of course, for the elite, free movement was opportunity and benefit. But if you live in a place like Great Yarmouth, where you see your town is changing quite dramatically and you see lots of people coming to your town, but the the EU doesn't offer you any benefits, you start to wonder why we're in the EU. What has the EU ever done for me? Like anything and everything related to this most divisive of subjects, where you stand now on the Maastricht Treaty is likely a reflection of how you view the European project as a whole. But it can be without question that the agreement hammered out by those 12 national leaders in a small Dutch city over endless cups of late-night coffee has truly echoed down the years, shaping the continent over the decades that followed, for good and sometimes for ill. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Jack Blanchard. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. That's it now for season five, and I'm going to be taking a couple of months away from the microphone to enjoy some shared parental leave with my family. Still, it's worth saying that very few of the episodes we make are actually time sensitive. So while we're on a break, why not have a look through our back catalogue for others that you might enjoy? 
My producer this week was James Tyndale of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my UK editor is Kate Day. I'll be back soon. I'll see you then. <laughs>